Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and even strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution, as these podcasts will feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have Double Indemnity, starring Fred McMurray, Barbara Stanwyck, Edward G. Robinson, directed by Billy Wilder. And we'd like to welcome the listeners to Rye Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes fine spirits with fine films. And uh, there's not a mystery person in the booth today. Uh, I am battling a little bit of an illness. And so today Matt is treating himself to more of the Clyde Clyde Mays uh, straight rye whiskey. And I am having myself some nice peppermint tea <laughs> but we're gonna we're gonna sally forth anyway and uh, we're gonna con, uh, conclude today with uh the final uh, nail in the cask for for this gun and the girl segment that we've been been diving into this trek into film noir that started with serenity well we, we saw it last week again with basic instinct and now we're gonna see it in its heyday uh, with this 1944 classic from director Billy Wilder, and we hope you've had had the chance to see it. It is it is truly a remarkable film, and we have a lot to talk about it with today. Um, but before we get started, we're gonna get going here with the uh, the flight for question for today. And you know, being that we just passed Valentine's Day, you know, love is in the air. And there's many interesting film couples uh, throughout film history. So my question to you, Matt, is what is the most unorthodox or the most interesting pairing um, film couple that you've seen? I'm going to use this one because I want people to see this movie. I think some people might have missed it or otherwise disregarded it. But the relationship between Julianne Moore and Joseph Gordon-Levitt in Don John is one that I think is really good. There's the age issue, and we've seen that done well in the past. Obviously, Harold and Maude would come to mind. There's some other ones in there too, but that one comes to mind immediately. But the Julianne Moore and Don John character pairing is generational, but it's also, I think, kind of wrapped in a movie that a lot of people sort of looked at as that just looks like kind of a schlocky knockoff on porn and maybe I'm not going to bother. I think most people sort of missed that idea um, in that film. Magic Mike comes to mind too in that regard. And that that movie mm-hmm. for a lot of females wasn't as greatly appreciated as I think they had hoped it would be. And I'll admit to here on everybody and post-Valentine's Day that I actually really love that film. <laughs> because um, I think... What the story is, is terrifically done inside what seemed to be pretty dismissed as far as just beefcake. Okay, so Don John's the same thing, right? Joseph Gordon-Levitt has an addiction to porn. Mm -hmm. Julianne Moore essentially catches him in the middle of that. In the middle, he's sort of battling with Scarlett Johansson over, you know, sex roles and power in this film. And they really hit it off. And they hit it off at a scene where she sort of bears her soul to him. And kind of expresses why she's single. And from that point forward, they become a couple. And I don't know if they make it. The movie doesn't really allude to if this is a permanent thing. And I would actually say probably not. But he finds some peace with her. And she finds some peace with him. And 
I think the desires that his addiction, if you will, to porn were meeting are quelled by her. And she's just terrific uh, in that film. She's widowed. And I don't want to get into the story on how that happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's the one I'm going to use today just because that's one of those very odd pairings in film that could have gone really south mm-hmm. and ended up working out really well. I would say there was like there were three in contention for me. Yeah. And a lot of people are probably going to turn off their podcast when they hear this. Mm-hmm. But I think Jake Gyllenhaal and Anne Hathaway are also really good in Love and Other Drugs. I thought that movie was sort of miscast as a failure, but it's actually, in my opinion, really good. Like I said, mm-hmm. Harold and Maude, but it's Don John for me. Okay. How about you? So I'm actually going to... This is a very unorthodox film couple, being that they share very little screen time together. And... They're created out of the pursuit of greatness of others. And it's The Bride of Frankenstein and and Victor Frankenstein's monster. Uh, the Bride of Frankenstein sequel, I actually think, is one of the best sequels ever made. Far, far better than the original. And, Agreed. And you have this monster who, in the second film, actually makes quite a bit of progress in his... You know, quest for humanity. He learns how to read. He strikes up a pretty great friendship with the, with this uh, this blind Why individual. Man. Yeah, in in his shack, yeah. and he's actually kind of making some headway in what he's trying to make of his life as people are trying to hunt and kill him. And um, then you have uh, this mad professor who strikes up this bond with Dr. Frankenstein to make yet another another monster. Dr. Uh, Pretorius. Dr. Pretorius and his his jar of of, of little, little oddities. Little oddities. Yeah, that seemed <laughs> yeah. weird. Uh but they they do go about creating a mate for the for the monster and the reason I call it unorthodox is she's terrified of him when she first where his eyes she she shrieks and kind of kind of cowers back so as excited as the monster was to have a companion in life now uh, she's horrified at the sight of him and which that's been the reaction to him since the prior film so the only way to kind of fix that is you know killing the both of them and he tells tells them we belong dead and kind of ends it for the both of them but it, it's it's a very interesting play on you know, there's the, there's that the, the great line of, you know, of gods and monsters at play within this Frankenstein franchise, and I think it's like at its pinnacle here in this second film, and you know, the film's called The Bride of Frankenstein, but she really doesn't show up until maybe the last five minutes of the movie, but we kind of get those those moments there that I talked about, and then in that there's there's even an, a secondary you know love story there between you know. Henry and 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 his wife too, and mm-hmm. her trying to kind of make make amends and make peace with this life that he leads, this kind of this creation. She was almost killed in the prior movie, so mm-hmm. so yeah. So I would have to go with that one. I, I think that's a very. I don't think it gets talked about nearly as much as much as it should. The level of filmmaking and acting, like Karloff, Colin Clive. Um, and James Will's direction is just totally amplified from the first film to the second film. It's actually funny that you brought that movie up because mm-hmm. I have a whole little 
spiel that I want to go on later about mm. that exact same film, mm. which is kind of interesting. In this podcast about double indemnity, yeah. Bride of Frankenstein is going to come up twice, but I think that's a terrific choice. Mm-hmm. If you haven't seen either one of those movies, I think uh, both will serve your time well. Yeah. Check them out. Excellent. So let's get right to it. Uh, let's get to the main event, and we're going to start with the brief synopsis of Double Indemnity. We open in the wee hours of the morning at Pacific All Risk Insurance Agency. Walter Neff, brilliantly played by Fred McMurray, who's an insurance salesman, makes his way through the empty halls of the agency into the office of Barton Keyes, who we'll meet later, where he begins to record a confession, if you will, and the confession is just how he ended up in this sad, bloody current state that we find him in, which is a slight wound on his shoulder, heavy sweat, and tired or maybe a slumped gesture or position um, hurting. From that point, we flash back to six weeks earlier, and we find Walter Neff servicing his policyholders, uh, kind of just keeping up with updating insurance policies and this and that, where he happens upon Phyllis Dietrichson, played by Barbara Stanwyck. She's masterful in this role, and I'm sure we'll talk plenty about how we got her in that role. But Phyllis is the wife of one of Neff's clients, and she is introduced to Walter clad nothing in more than a towel, having taken a sun bath in the backyard. This moment, the trap is set. Camera focuses on the anklet that's on her, or the, yeah, the jewelry on her anklet. I guess that's called an anklet. The anklet on her ankle. Yep. And Neff is smitten. Uh, like, immediately interested. Walter's ill pursuit is clumsy and initially ill-begotten of Phyllis. And she picks up on that immediately. Uh, She senses his vulnerability. And she's going to prey on this through a seduction of sorts that culminates in a sequence derived of bourbon, and I hope a clean glass, some perfume that's reminiscent of Ensenada, and the story for her of an absent alcoholic husband who sometimes gets drunk and smacks my face. Love that line. Together, Walter and Phyllis come up with a plan to kill her husband, using the accident insurance that Neff has tricked him into buying, which includes a double indemnity clause. This double indemnity clause pays twice should the misfortunate die by falling off a train of all places. So instead of a $20,000 payout, if he should die in a train, it's a $40,000 payout. So hiding in the back of the Dietrichson's car, Walter kills Phyllis's husband, on the way to his reunion, which would occur by him getting on this train. So then dressed as the deceased, Walter takes her husband's deceased, the deceased husband's place on the train, and whereupon he fakes his own death by falling off the back of the train. He then gets up, and Phyllis rushes with Walter's aid to put the corpse in the place where Neff supposedly fell off, therefore looking as if setting up the... uh, the place of the accident, if you will. So all that's left to do for the two is hide in plain sight and wait for the insurance money to arrive. Then our two murdering adulterers can take it right down the line and spend the rest of their days together. In Sonata, who knows, somewhere. 
So Barton Keyes, who's Neff's boss, which is played brilliantly also by Edward G. Robinson, I'm sure we'll get into his sort of career path a little bit tonight too, begins an investigation into the strange death because nobody could fall off a train going less than 20 miles an hour and break their neck. And Keyes is very famous in this movie for having a little man inside him, which essentially is conscience, Mm -hmm. and sort of lets him know that something isn't quite right. So the more he investigates, the more the cracks in the case turn into caverns. And this ultimately is going to cause the suspicions between Walter and Phyllis to heighten to the point where neither one of them can trust each other. So with their trust and secrecy of their plan eroding, they turn on each other. And in a final plot twist, they plan to kill each other in one final meeting before each one of them goes their own way. So in Phyllis's house... Walter arrives pretty late at night, closes the blinds, and there's some some banter back and forth between the two of them. But Phyllis gets off the first shot, slug right to Walter's shoulder. Unfortunately, she can't finish the job. Quite unexpectedly, she's fallen for Neff, as she admits to him. <coughs> the insurance sleazy salesman that was way not even close to being in her league now is the man that she sort of has fallen head over heels for. Unfortunately for her, though, Neff does not share the same sentiment. And he ends this relationship by firing three shots into her abdomen. As she dies in his arms, his final words, her eulogy, goodbye, baby. So we move to the Pacific All Risk and find the recording finished just as Keyes arrives. We'll get snippets of that recording throughout the course of the film that kind of tells us sort of a non-sequential story but essentially mm-hmm. he's just sort of catching the people up on what's happening catching the audience up on what's happening walter tells keys goodbye and asks for four hours of lag time before keys goes to the police that way walter can get across the border walter makes it about as far as the foyer door the bullet in his shoulder and i think the weight of his depravity is much too much at that point he can't go on any further walter collapses and as we fade out keys sidles up to walter offering him nothing more than a small condolence of a cigarette, but genuinely given from a place of compassion. Mm -hmm. And that final curtain as it's being lit is essentially curtains for the movie and also curtains for Neff. Mm -hmm. That's basically the story. Uh, Jesse, upon your first viewing of this film or reaction to this film, why don't you kick us off with the mash and tell us what you think? My first kind of viewing of double indemnity i was really kind of shocked that the film was kind of letting the audience know the outcome right from the get-go that you were kind of learning that he that he had killed uh dietrichson's husband and he was this is his confessional in this in this recording device for his for his boss and then we kind of see the events leading up to it. I thought that was a real interesting plot mechanism to, to, to you know, get the story to propel forward. To me, the the what makes this film work really well too is Fred McMurray's voiceover. This kind of elegant way that he gets us from scene to scene, in 
And it was like I was driving up the way to Glendale, and it was like, and they had the Spanish houses there, the ones everyone loved. Uh, every ten to fifteen years, they cost thirty thousand dollars now, and, hmm. and 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 things like that. And even after he leaves his first meeting with Teacher, he's like, he's like, my mind is so wrapped up, I could I couldn't do anything. So I went to the I went to get that bottle of beer, and then I went to you know taste of it out of my mouth. Get the taste of it out of my mouth. I went to go 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 roll a couple pins uh, down down the bowling alley. Like his voiceover, the way and the way he speaks, um, you know, really propels each scene from A, B, C, D, E, F, and especially during the sequence where they're actually killing Dietrichson's husband. It's just just so eloquently done with the staging of, you know, these little pieces of of cardboard in places to know if someone's been there making sure his alibis are in place, going down the stairwells, no one saw me that time either, and things like that. And then, of course, Barbara Stanwyck, you know, really stands out. Maybe maybe, maybe it's her, 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 her wig that really stands out that was kind of notoriously hated by Billy Wilder himself, too. But, you know, her lure into, into this, he just went to her that day to sell the husband insurance and he gets enveloped in this whole web of deceit lies murder passion etc and then edward g robinson as his boss keys is he's like almost like borderline genius the way he is able to uh, manipulate or uh, pick apart the the stories of these insurance claims and whether they're phony or not and you and you kind of from the get-go like he's gonna find a way to like poke holes in that even though Neff has taken enough um, care to make sure that doesn't happen, but this was—I think this was actually the first Billy Wilder film that I saw, and the the man's filmography speaks for itself. Do you think he's one of the people that should be on the Mount Rushmore of Hollywood directors that inexplicably and consistently gets left out? Because I'm going to say I do think that about him. I think so. Yeah. And there's the group, right, that we all talk about, the Hitchcocks, the Scorseses, the Primingers, mm-hmm. if you will. Mm-hmm. And he, anyway, I don't mean to take you off that, but like just recognizing that man's greatness for mm-hmm. a moment. Yeah. And I'll, I'll just kind of tell you this, like, like right now, um, you know, the films he followed this up with, yeah. you know, into the 50s are, they're, they're, they're remarkable. Yeah. So this was kind of my first foray into his movies. And, you know, he was kind of... He was from Berlin and, you know, immigrated to, to the United States. So he brought a lot of that, that German filmmaking sensibility, uh, you know, to the States. And you, you see that at play in the cinematography. You know, there's repeatedly those shots of, you know, the Venetian blinds or what they, what they call them. And, you know, McMurray's face like kind of like staggered with the, with the shadow of the blinds and just real great use of of the of the shadow you know when the reveal of people walking into frame or in doorways and things like that so i think that would be my initial impression i had seen a couple film noirs prior to this but this was kind of the first one that you know with a pretty simple premise this again insurance money that really hit all the boxes for me you know i had this femme fatale this you know this this scheme and then the eventual like it all falling apart in the last 30 minutes of the movie this is the film noir that all the other ones are measured by mm-hmm. this is the quintessential film noir and i think the boxes that you just talked about 
must be checked off in order for it to qualify as traditional noir or mm. film noir. Yeah. There can be noir that's crime drama, and we talked about that a few weeks ago. This one, for me, has all of the necessary parts of film noir. Heavy dialogue, or back-and-forth dialogue, almost like tennis match. Voiceover narration. Most of the scenes are at night. Towards the last act of the movie, the plot gets semi-convoluted and there's sort of a seemingly new introduction of characters time kind of like time basic again. instinct right um and then the tension between the femme fatale and the protagonist and stanwick in that role i think is really remarkable i don't think barbara stanwick is traditional hollywood beauty of 1940s immensely talented and could be everything from the cowgirl to the femme fatale and played them all mm-hmm. beautifully but when she shows up at that top of the stairs in that towel with that anklet on and that cheap blonde wig and that bright red lipstick, even though it's black and white, it just looks like a gash in her face. Mm-hmm. She just looks trashy. And McMurray is so smitten with her that he can't get past that. And then she, once she recognizes that, the, the trap is baited. And... And he is the little puppy at her heels the rest of the film. And I yeah. love in this film his dialogue with her because he keeps baby, baby, you know, mm-hmm. these, and it just comes across as wooden and clunky and almost laughable. By the, the 15th time he says that, you're rolling your eyes inside. You know what she's doing on the inside. Yeah. And he is so easily gettable for her because basically the pitch is, I think I feel something for you. My husband beats me up and he's an alcoholic. Is there a way we can do something about this? Like, I have an idea. Why don't you show me? Why don't you sell me an accident insurance policy? Mm-hmm. We'll get him to sign the wrong document because he'll be drunk. We can take the money from this insurance policy and off we go. And at first he says no. And then in that scene that I sort of spoke of in the synopsis, which is just really, really kind of obscene and mm-hmm. perverted in a way. Yeah. She shows up and asks, do you have something to drink? And he's like, all I got's bourbon. Can you find your way to the bottle in a glass? Like, it's just so ridiculous. And he thinks that this shtick is like working on her and she allows it to. Mm-hmm. And then we progress and we get to the quintessential moment, which I love the way Wilder shoots it. And we'll get to why it was shot this way here in the next segment, I think. Mm-hmm. Looking at Stanwick as we hear her husband's gurgles and struggles as Walter strangles him from the backseat of the car on the way Mm -hmm. to his reunion and Stanwyck icy barely barely blinks unblinking yeah staring straight ahead down the highway straight down the line Mm -hmm. yeah so every other film noir and there's some that come close I would say the original Postman comes close Uh, a lot of people don't consider Vertigo noir but I would that's one of the you know certainly greatest of all time Mm mm-hmm um, for me, out of the past gets there too. But this movie sets a very, very high bar for the other ones to try to ascend, and most of the time they they fail. And I would argue it has mostly to do with the casting. There's a speed limit in this state, Mister Neff, forty-five miles an hour. How fast was I going, officer? I'd say around ninety. Suppose you get down off your motorcycle and give me a ticket. Suppose I let you off with a warning this time. Suppose it doesn't take. Suppose I have to whack you over the knuckles. Suppose I bust out crying and put my head in your shoulder. 
Suppose you try putting it on my husband's shoulder. That tears it. One of the things that also helps this movie is the belief that less is more. Released in 1944, this movie is right in the middle of a period in Hollywood known as the Hayes Period, and it's governed essentially by a censorship body known as the Hayes Code. So I think the history on this is important to understand why double indemnity plays the way that it does, okay? So I'm going to take you all the way back to 1921. Hollywood royalty, Fatty Arbuckle, rapes and murders a woman named Virginia Rappe. This is a huge, huge, huge crisis controversy in Hollywood. And this starts the wheels rolling for a movement against salacious material that audiences might see because people actually took what actions Arbuckle committed of his own free will Mm -hmm. and said maybe there was something subliminally that he was showing in his films that might have corrupted people that saw his film. So again, consider it's 1921, so it's post-World War I America, and I think a lot of putting the pieces back together of the fabric of society and healthy and wholesome were really important. Mm -hmm. Okay, so... Jump from 1921 to 1930. By that point, the censorship body has formed a name. It's got a head, Mr. Hayes, Mm -hmm. and they introduce what's known as the Hayes Code. Now, the Hayes Code won't officially come into actually being enforced until 1934, and it's going to exist until 1968. You also have another really big film innovation happening at the same time here, this conversion from silent films to talking films films as well the introduction of sound into into cinema well and i'll also add one more to that Mm -hmm. which is eventually color Mm -hmm. right okay so sound color and salacious material so there are some pretty silly rules in this early censorship body and it has to do with like respecting the sanctity of marriage Uh, so that meant that there was no illicit sex which speaks to the seduction scene and double indemnity Barbara Stanwyck shows up in this really thin, fuzzy white sweater that's about a size or two too small. Kind of an obscene bra underneath. And it's just riddled with seduction. So after that scene takes place, we don't actually see much of the uh, physical contact between McMurray and Stanwyck. Mm -hmm. But we come back from that and he's smoking a cigarette with his feet up on the couch and she's reapplying her lipstick and we're able to put two and two together and see that this this evil partnership has been consummated if you will so that's one another one would be like you couldn't have passionate kissing so it had to be less than 3 seconds the best example that i can think of this is in notorious Cary grant and ingrid ingrid bergman comes to rescue her from the clutches of this evil nazi Claude Rains. Yep. For Claude Rains. Claude Rains. Raise one for Claude Rains. Raise one for Claude Rains. That scene is shot so well. I know you know the scene I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. He comes up, she's in bed, she's sick, and he can't quite kiss her for more than three seconds continuously. So the space, the proximity of their profiles, they're literally sharing every breath with several exchanges of kisses in there. I think it's fantastic, and Mm -hmm. they look really, really good, and Hitchcock does that masterfully. Uh, There couldn't be anything that would... Uh, discourage or disparage religion which gets back to what you talked about earlier okay so you brought up right of frankenstein Hmm. if you watch those two films and this is this is this example as clear as i can possibly see 
the first movie is Victor Frankenstein struggling with the God complex, man playing the role of God as creator. And it makes no bones about his desire to do so. I am God, right? This whole, like, Mm -hmm. I'm God, I'm God. Like, over and over and over. Second movie, that's all gone. There's not a single reference to the God complex in The Bride of Frankenstein. Bride of Frankenstein, post-1934, Hayes Code wasn't having it. So that had to go away. Mm -hmm. So they changed that. Um, There's a few more other things that they sort of discouraged, and it had to do with interracial relationships. Um... Certain ways that scenes had to be blocked so that it wouldn't allude to anything. That is, if two people were of opposite sexes and they were on the same bed, one or both of them had to have their foot on the floor. Uh, There's a great, great movie called The Awful Truth with Cary Grant and Irene Dunn. Eventually, they are a couple who's getting divorced. And at midnight, things are going to be finalized. So they get divorced, or they're about to get divorced, sorry. And they're in opposite rooms. And there's the sequence where he keeps showing out of her door and the wind keeps blowing the door open and this banter back and forth between why they were on the rocks as a couple anyway. And then she basically invites him in and we go to the cuckoo clock. And we see both of the characters from the cuckoo clock come out, which is like a male and a female Mm -hmm. um, German lederhosen looking guys. And then the guy, instead of going back into his side goes all the way around the clock to her side and they go in through the door together. Yeah. Okay, then of course everyone knows that this is like as on the nose as it can be and that's the final shot in North by Northwest. Mm-hmm. Right? In the train. In the train. The train barreling through the tunnel right as Cary Grant or right after Cary Grant has pulled Eva Marie Saint up into the bridal bed on the train. So Edward Demaduck had a really interesting comment about this and what he said was you know, what the Hayes Code forced us as directors to do was create a style that was more suggestive than exploitative. And he said, if we wanted to get something across that was censorable, we had to do it deviously. We had to be clever, and it turned out to be better than if we had done it straight. And I think that's the space that Double Indemnity really, really succeeds in. Mm-hmm. From the icy stare of Stanwyck as her husband's being murdered, to the post-coital reapplication of lipstick and the smoking of the cigarette. Um, the dialogue that takes place of foreplay. What you don't see in that movie is better than what you do see because it leaves it up to your imagination. And this is the perfect segue too because this is a story by James M. Kane, mm-hmm. adapted by Billy Wilder and Raymond Chandler, now, Raymond Chandler was, you know, writing these pulp novels of his own, you know, The Big Sleep, etc. And, you know, he came came to co-write this with Wilder, which there's a whole story on that uh, partnership that would probably make for a pretty good movie, actually. Uh, Billy Wilder and Raymond Chandler did not get along in the slightest. And uh, were constantly playing off each other while... Uh, Raymond Chandler hated that Billy Wilder would wear a baseball cap inside a building. And, you know, Wilder would taunt Chandler that that he could get women and that Chandler couldn't. He was all repressed and messed up. Like, this back-and-forth psychological, you know, mind games that they were playing. Oh, and then Chandler was a screaming drunk. Yep. Half the the script he wrote, he was drunk for. 
Exactly. And uh, so the reason the, the reason you know this kind of plays into the Hayes Code was, you know, Kane had um, sold his novel to, to 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 Paramount with hopes of a screenplay being made. So when the screenplays were written, part of the approval process was they had to go to this Hayes Code to get the stamp of approval. And Double Indemnity kept, you know, no, you got to send it back. You got to you got to make uh, changes to that. You got to make cuts, um, you know, things like that. But it was it was really hard for them to make these changes because these characters are irreputable. Uh, they don't have a lot of great qualities to them. They're not redeemable to say to say the least. They're creating acts of murder for money. Uh, you know the acts are very sinful. Mm-hmm. You know in the eyes of the Hayes Code. So they eventually got it to the script that we got we got to see in the final film. But you know talking about last week, I talked about tacked on endings. Mm-hmm. The same thing happened here in this film too. Yeah. And this footage is lost, by the way. But uh. They actually filmed a scene of Neff going to the gas chamber to show that the criminals did indeed pay. Because in the film we see, we don't see that. We just kind of see him slump over, um, wounded from his his gunshot wound. And Keyes lights his cigarette and fade to black. Yeah, fade to black. So we didn't get to see that scene of him being arrested. So... You know that's that's the Hayes Code in in effect here as well. Having to, you know, have a scene where you know the bad guys do indeed pay for their crimes. Supposedly in that scene that's lost, Edward G. Robinson is there too to watch it happen. Mm-hmm. And there's a moment between the two of them where they kind of exchange a glance, and Robinson sort of gives him the okay, like I understand, kind of almost a cleansing of his sins, if you will, per urban legends of this film. Like all I have seen are a few stills from that. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, probably something that I don't think we need. And I think Neff even says so as he's about to expire as far as being shot in the movie about to end in his story. He says, why? So you can put me back together and send me to the San Quentin gas chamber. Like Neff even gives the audience, if the cops come, what good, man, Mm -hmm. it's, it's going to end up the same way, which is the final thing that I sort of didn't mention earlier and the importance in noir. And that's the role of fate. Fate takes a very important position in so that it has a course predetermined for the players in the movie. And no matter what they do, it's going to get there. And this is Walter Neff's fate. And it's alluded to several times prior to they're going to piece me back together and send me to San Quentin in the gas chamber, which is in some of his narrative, which says something like, you know, it occurred to me as I was walking, I couldn't hear my steps. It was the sound of a dead man walking like over and over and over again. Last stop for this this train was the graveyard. Like he talks about his own death several times in the film, which again goes back to what we're sort of talking about here, the seen versus the unseen. Mm-hmm. Do we really need to see him? No. Of course not. Executed. No, no way. Yeah. It's you another, know what's going to happen. Yeah. Tacked on epilogue. Right. Yes. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the casting of this of this film. You know, it, it takes... Uh, that that's quite a story in in it of its of itself you know with you know these these characters of of Dietrichson, Neff and and Keys and nobody wanted to play these characters right. because they were so 
they didn't they didn't have great qualities they were all compromised to say to say the least so i'll kind of talk a little bit and i'll let you, i'll let you talk about stanwick but you know some names attached to the fred mcmurray part were the likes of gregory peck spencer tracy james cagney none of these guys wanted to do it so fred mcmurray was actually you know now we're in the time where actors were under contract with studio and Fred McMurray was a Paramount player, so you know if you're under contract, you kind of have to, you kind of have to play. It's, it's kind of like an easier way to get the your actors to be in your movies. They're already there. He mostly had made his chops at that point in romantic comedy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you can you imagine that? Like, kind of just take yourself back to that time. That's almost like it's almost like sports. It's almost like you're you're your studio, you're MGM or you're you're Warner Brothers, and you got like your lineup of actors yeah, yeah. and they, they can only make movies with you mm-hmm. and then you have to negotiate and kind of keep them there if you want to keep making movies with them like today like that's not even a question right they go make indie films now and blockbusters and whatever like back then that was like not the case at all yeah so stanwick her most critically acclaimed role as far as academy award is stella dallas which essentially is domesticated mother slash housewife now, I would also argue she's really good in Ball of Fire, and she's really good in The Strange Loves of Martha Ivers. Uh, those are a couple off the top of my head. She's got a very, very prolific career, but she turned this role down from Wilder multiple times because I think she saw what some actors and actresses in today's version of the studio system can't see, and it is, if I play a role that is too salacious or too hmm, rough, it might typecast me and finish things off for me. And most of the women wanted to play really, really great roles. Okay, Crawford wanted to play Mildred Pierce, although Sudden Fear is fantastic, right? Betty Davis mm-hmm. is most now Voyager, yep. right? So we can go on and on, and, and, and Stanwyck fits into the same category as far as I need the really good domestic, traditional female role because that's what's going to seal my place. Mm-hmm. But Jesse, there's no question that of all the roles that I just mentioned, from Mildred Pierce to Martha Ivers to you, you name it, Phyllis Dietrichson's the most memorable by miles, oh, yeah. man. Oh, yeah. That character that she created... Mostly through the negotiation and the persistence of Wilder, mm-hmm. set the standard for which an entire genre of movie would forever try to reclaim. Like no one was going to do it as good as she did. Yeah. And for her, I'll give her a lot of credit. And that goes to the bravery that some of these actors and actresses, and in case some directors, mm-hmm. had to have against this this oppressive censorship body known as the Hays Code. Here's yeah. one for you. Mm-hmm. Double Indemnity was a box office disaster. People didn't want to see that kind of material. Yeah. The first movie that was released, this is going to blow you away. The first movie that was released that was a financial success that did not have the Hayes Code of Approval, also a Billy Wilder film. Some Like It Hot. Mm. Men dressed up as women, set against prohibition era violence. That movie didn't that movie didn't qualify. That movie was censored by the Hayes Code. Yeah. So there's four really important films in Hollywood's attempt to break down the Hays Code. Okay, I just mentioned the first one. Mm-hmm. Some like it hot. Yeah. The next three are all by Priminger. 
Okay, so they are, the moon is blue, which is one I've never seen actually. But the other two I have. The second one is The Man with the Golden Arm, which is Frank Sinatra as a heroin addict. And the third one, also by Priminger, is Anatomy of a Murder, which is a courtroom drama with Jimmy Stewart. Mm. You look at those films, and maybe with the exception of Man with the Golden Arm, it is a bit of a head-scratcher to see. Like, we're in 1960 now. Mm-hmm. And and some like it hot, 61. So we're in the 60s. So it's at the end, and I think we've progressed as a society, and we're not quite so afraid of material that we see is going to turn us into these depraved, raving lunatics or whatever they thought it was going to do. Mm-hmm. But I think it's crazy that some like it hot, which is kind of a pretty common... Ho- comedy trope yeah, yeah, right yeah. fish out of water almost never saw the almost never saw the screen wow right mm-hmm. and then so you got to give a nod here to barbara stanwick for stepping outside of what most females wanted to act in hollywood and then to preminger and wilder to a lesser extent but also to wilder that's two films double indemnity Something like it hot in a three by Preminger to really kind of just give the Hayes Code the middle finger and say, We're going to make these movies, and if people don't want to like them, we have faith that people can make that decision for themselves. And I think that's a monumental moment. And this is when we get the classification of neo noir mm-hmm. 1968 forward. That officially is when neo noir begins. There's a clause in every accident policy, a little thing called double indemnity. The insurance companies put in a sort of a come on for the customers. That means they pay double on certain accidents. Kind that almost never happen. Like, for instance, if a guy is killed on the train, they pay 100000 instead of 50000 I see. We're hitting it for the limit, baby. That's why it's got to be the train. I want to talk about what is probably the most electrifying sequence in the entire film, and that's the actual murder of, of Dietrichson's husband. Now, you know, the way it's set up, you know, it's been, you know, 45 minutes of planning already, and they've been meeting at the grocery store, like, daily, like pretending to shop to you know coordinate you know where they're going to be where they're going to do it he's getting on the train and then you know a wrench gets thrown into 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 the cogworks when he breaks his his leg at his at his job so now he's in the cast and now he's not going on his trip but then she convinces him to go and 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 it just gets so like the 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 tension just built like like builds layer upon layer and you know, Neff goes through his whole routine of leaving the house. He wants to make sure he has an alibi. He's got a guy washing his car in the basement down downstairs. So if they know they, he thinks he's upstairs. He walks to 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 Dietrichson's home, pops into the into the back of the of the car, you know, kind of waiting, and then you know they're off, and then and and down the road there. And when they pull, and when they pull off on the road, you know, you kind of do see that banter again of 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 Dietrichson and 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 her husband. Oh, you're only going to be gone four days. Is like he says, like he's like, oh, you'll be you'll be glad you'll be glad I'm gone. Like just so, just so you don't have to see me, kind kind of a thing. And then when she turns on the road, this desolate, isolate road, and we get that those three honks the. Burr, burr, burr. and we essentially just see it from from Barbara Stanwyck's perspective of Dietrichson's husband being, being choked out by Neff and we just see her just steely, cold, conniving, unblinking, this calculated monster that 
and she's like unemotional about it and she's unemotional about it afterwards she's like not shaken by any aspect of of their actions yeah she that scene is as far as the action bit would go certainly the most interesting in the in the movie because this is actually how the two are going to carry it out and again for the quintessential moment being that that suffocation or the choking of Mr. Dietrichson, who, by the way, is not given a name. Mm-hmm. He doesn't actually even have a first name yeah. in the script. He's just called Mr. Dietrichson, mm-hmm. played by, I think his name's Tom Powers. Mm-hmm. So when we're watching Stanwick, steely, cold, icy, listen to the gurgling last call of her husband's final few moments, the natural reaction would be sooner or later, she's at least going to look over flinch mm-hmm. um, grimace something and she's just so stoic and so statuesque it's one of the more amazing moments through an acting performance yeah. that is literally someone doing nothing when it would be impossible to do nothing even on set just having this gurgling fellow next to you would draw at least a look over there not Phyllis mm-hmm. it's almost like she's familiar with how to do this And that gets me to, as much as I love that scene that you were just talking about, Mm -hmm. the other bit that I find really, really troubling in the film is when Walter Neff starts to become friendly with Mr. Diestrickson's daughter. Lola. Lola, played by Jean Heather. So after Mr. Diedrichson is dead, Lola shows up at Pacific All Risk to meet with Mr. Neff. Mm Mm-hmm. She's obviously, you know, upset. And she gives this bit of information to Walter that says, I've seen Phyllis do something similar to this before with my mother. Mm -hmm. She was my mother's nurse. And I'm making this much shorter than it was. But essentially, she left the window open on purpose, froze her to death or gave her pneumonia. Yeah. And then when I walked in upon her, I saw her in the mirror practicing what it would look like to be in mourning with a black veil. And we see, man, five minutes later, her show up. With the black veil. Yeah, Phyllis show up at Pacific All Risk with the black veil on. Mm -hmm. And she's very, very comfortable in that spot. Mm -hmm. And it starts to, I think, really get Walter's suspicions going about, man, what have I signed up for here? And maybe I am way out of my league. Like I'm with a hard, calloused, hard boiled, Mm -hmm. slick motherfucker, villain woman. And at this point, the only way out for him is either his neck or her. So he decides it's hers. But there's another thing too, that exists between him and and Lola. So Lola starts telling him, I'm going to go to the authorities. I'm going to tell him what I know about Phyllis. I'm going to tell him. And he tells Phyllis I have to keep her from going to the authorities because I don't want her to spill the beans on you. But that's not really the case, is it? Mm -mm. Because if it comes out about her, then it comes out about him as well. And there's a line in that movie that is loaded. And and it's through voiceover, through the narrative that we get, not as a recording, but just in voiceover um, as they're traveling and going to dinner. I think they're in the car and then they go to some Mexican restaurant, him and Lola. And he says, I started spending a lot of time with her to keep her preoccupied. And the things that they're doing to spend each other's time preoccupation. Sunday drives. Look an awful lot like dates. Yeah, dinners. Don't they? Yep. Right. And here's the other part that's also good in this. 
We talked about this a little bit last week, how the only one that can undo the femme fatale is the wholesome woman who tries to outfem the femme fatale. Yeah. Lola sort of takes on that role. Lola has also been introduced to us in the film as a young woman who has a boyfriend named Nino Zacchetti. Yeah. We're going to come to him in just a minute too. Yeah. So this is getting a little bit more complex now and this is kind of traditional in the noir vein. Yeah. So... Early in the film, Neff catches her in a lie, sneaking out essentially to go hang out with this Nino Zacchetti guy. This Zacchetti guy is kind of abrasive and hot-headed, and mostly we don't think much more about it other than that get-throwaway scene where we meet Zacchetti for the first time. Yeah. But Lola knows how to manipulate men a little bit too, doesn't she? Mm-hmm. She shoots enough of a smile to have Mr. Neff give her a ride so that she can sneak out of the parents' house because she's going to go roller skating with her friend, but instead yeah. the roller skating is probably not even having to do with rollers or skating, and mm-hmm. it's mostly just hanging out with Nino. And I think at that moment, Neff also sees potential prey in Lola. And there's no way that with the Hayes Code acting the way that it was and censoring film the way it was, that they could show that relationship having another affair with the adulterer, murderess's stepdaughter. Oh, no way. No way. Yeah. But if you watch that film carefully, to me, there is no question that they're together. And then you might say, well, I just don't think Walter would do that. And I would say, really? He already slept with somebody else's wife. He already sold a fake insurance policy. And they murdered him for a measly $40,000. So Walter Neff would draw the line there? No, he wouldn't. He's absolutely been with Lola. And so here you go. Who do you cheer for now, Jesse? I guess the only real character you can cheer for is Keyes, played by Edward G. Robinson. Now, he's an interesting actor as well, being that, you know, he kind of didn't want to do this film either, you know, because he was kind of like leading a leading man, and, you know, he'd been kind of the lead in a lot of movies, and this is a supporting role, and he didn't want to start becoming that guy, but eventually came around to it. But, you know, he's interesting. You know, we talked about, you know, he's got that little man in him, is this subconscious that really kind of tells him look at that a second way or take your time and look and 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 do your due diligence to to really research that he even did that to the point where he was this close to being married and then did a full investigation on his fiance and found all this dirt and lies and deceit that he ended up calling off the whole thing and you know, you know, really speaks to his skill at what he does, but then also, you know, how careful, you know, Neff has to be when con- concocting this double indemnity scheme. Now, I think Keyes has some real compassion for for Neff, and, we, you know, we see that earlier in the film where he actually offers him uh, a job being his assistant, and... Neff's like, well, you know, I can't do that. I'm a salesman. I've always been a salesman. I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep doing that. But you know, you know, you know, thank you. And, 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 and Keys kind of comes back with him with that, that, that kind of like great sagely advice, saying like, ah, oh, you're the same as all the other ones. You're just taller, kind of a thing. But you know, you know, Keys is kind of the, the thorn in the side of this, this, this whole scenario. And in a great sequence. Uh, Neff's in his in his apartment and Dietrichson phones him saying I gotta see you like I haven't seen you in a couple days like let me come up I'm down I'm at the drugstore mm-hmm. can, can I can I come up and he's like yeah come up and she, I'll, she's like I'll be there in like f- five minutes 
And then like as soon as he hangs up the phone, there's a knock at the door and it's keys and he's like, Something ain't sitting well, like with the little man. He's like he's like he's like, I got a piece of concrete stuck in this in, in my in my stomach. Peppermint or something. He, he got some peppermint, you got you got you got a bicarbonate soda, and like <laughs> yeah. any anything like that. Cause like he's really trying to hone in on how someone could die, you know, going that slow, falling off of a train. There's just kind of like no way unless they were already dead. So he's like giving Neff the, the the workaround saying like this is how it was done. This is this is how they would have done it. And in the back of your head, you're like, oh my God, like I hope Dietrichson doesn't knock on that door like right now. Like this is gonna because once he sees the two of them together, that's it. It's curtains. Yep. Like yep. they're going to jail. There's no insurance money. Like, it's over. And, you know, she kind of comes to the door right as he's about to leave. Hears them talking and masterfully, like, hides behind the door as he leaves. Thank God for outward opening doors. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, you know, he's like, he's like going out the elevator and, and she's hiding and it's all kind of shown down the hallway yeah. you know you know really well done but there's a little interesting thing i discovered this go through of um you know keys and, and neff um keys consistently is trying to light cigarettes throughout throughout the thing and he never he never has a light so neff's there to strike up a match and give him a light i think it's like Four or five times it happens. Right. Basically through like an like using his thumb fingernail to yeah, like to flick it. Yeah, exactly. Right. And in the very last sequence when Neff's there all defeated and gunshot, um, he's trying to do the same thing and he can't. And that's when Keys comes and flicks that light from him and lights him the cigarette. And then we, you know, we, you know, fade out from there. But, you know, you kind of see this relationship at play the whole time. And it's one of compassion, but also, you know, it's the relationship that brings that brings it down, too. I'm going to mess up the actual dialogue on this. Sure. But it's something like when Keys comes in and finds Walter finishing the last recording. Mm-hmm. Basically, he says, Walter, you're all washed up. And then... He says, you know, I, I'm going to have to do something about this. That's when Walter goes into the, give me four hours to get across the border, blah, yeah. blah, blah. And he says, Keys, you know why you couldn't see this? is because it was right under, your, right, under, right under your nose. You had no idea that the person you were looking for was sitting as close to you as across the desk. Yeah. And I think, and that's really clunky and not exactly how it goes, but the line that's really important is the one that Keys gives him, which is closer than that, Walter. Letting him know... You were my best buddy. Mm-hmm. I actually really was quite fond of you, and you're right. That's why I couldn't see because I never in my because we also find out earlier in the film, Keys has investigated Neff, but Neff's done such a good job of creating an alibi where he was the night of the murder that Keys sort of dismisses that, yeah, and then realizes why I dismissed it too quickly because I liked you, mm-hmm. and. It's not much of a parting shot in the context of like the last thing that I, I don't want someone to light a match before me as I'm, you know, when you're there next to me and it's my final minutes, I hope that there's more than that. Yeah. But in the movie, it's, it's quite significant because that's been almost dialogue between the two of them and showing how they sort of look after each other. And they have a really, as much as film noir is the banter between 
the femme fatale and the protagonist, which is really well done between McMurray and Stanwyck in this movie. It's also done between him and Robinson. And part of that is that cigarette match thumb flick thingy. This thing that they established in the first scene we see them the in together. very first scene. Mm-hmm. Now this is a film too that was nominated for seven Academy Awards. You know, Stanwyck, Wilder, Best Picture. And it, it didn't win any of them. But... You know, this is why I think it would have been like pretty great to have like a drink with like Billy Wilder. He must have been a total character. So allegedly, when Wilder lost Best Director to um, the director of the film Going My Way, give me a break. I've never even seen that. <laughs> and um, literally, yeah, give me a break. Yeah, and um, so when he lost, Wilder was sit- as a, sitting in the aisle, and he actually stuck his foot out. And uh, mm-hmm. and uh, the director tripped over tripped over it mm-hmm. when he was walking up to the thing. So that's kind of the kooky character that you know that was Billy Wilder. And yeah, to further that, his follow up to this movie is called The Lost Weekend. You sort of spoke about it earlier. Yeah. But The Lost Weekend is a story about an alcoholic writer, which oh Wilder came out and said, "Look, this is me telling a story of what it was like to work with Raymond Chandler writing Double Indemnity, mm-hmm. and Raymond Land in that movie playing." Raymond Chandler, I think won Best Actor for that role yeah. in 1945. Yeah. I think he won Best Actor for the role of the drunk Raymond. If you all have not seen that movie, it is terrific. It's like a bender weekend of booze and like craziness. It also sort of gives me pause. Like I didn't even thought about this till just right now. How did that? How, how the hell did, did that get by the Hayes Code? Exactly, yeah. Uh, one more thing about that. We sort of spoke about Fatty Arbuckle, and I want to make sure that I'm consistent with this and everybody. He was not actually... Tr- I mean, he was tried for the murder. He was found not guilty. But despite him not being charged with the rape and murder of that Virginia Rappé, it still started the wheel. So I don't want anyone out there to be like, you know, the head of the Fatty Arbuckle fan club saying like, oh, you tried... No. He was found not guilty, but the process began through that. Yeah. So Billy Wilder um, won't win Best Director... Until he does the apartment in 60, 1960, the apartment. And here's the thing about Billy Wilder. One of the things you'll find with him is he likes to use the same people over and over again. Mm-hmm. So this is the third movie and final movie that he's going to make with Jack Lemmon. Um, and I think it's Shirley MacLaine's second film. Shirley MacLaine's first film is that Hitchcock film, um, Trouble with Harry. That's yeah. her first appearance in film. Mm-hmm. I think this is her second and that movie wins Best Director and I think also wins Best Picture in 1953. So Billy Wilder does eventually receive his recognition that is long overdue. Uh, and The Apartment's also a great film, but it's not Double Indemnity. Yeah. And Fred McMurray's in that as well. You know, thankfully, McMurray, Stanwyck, Robinson agreed to be in this because this is probably the best movie of all three of those actors. Yeah, without without a doubt. Without a doubt. Not saying something with Stanwyck because she had a brilliant career. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know Fred McMurray was in other things like The Absent Minded Professor, like at Disney. <laughs> my Three Sons. Yeah, my he had the whole Disney contract. I think uh, toward the, the later end of his career. Yeah. So we before we get into our final ratings for Double Indemnity, uh, just a quick overview of our rating system. So we have Rock Gut, which is bottom of the barrel, Terrible. one star. Yeah. Ugh. We have Well, which is, you know, you know your two-star, you know, kind of eh, still not great, but, you know, a little bit better than Total Trash. We have Call, so 
know that's kind of your middle middle of the line film you know you know you know pretty good in, in, in some areas but maybe not exceeding in others your three star you then you have your your four star rating your your single barrel you know those are your truly u- unique movies you know you know kind of maybe once in a lifetime type of things and our final rating is the top shelf this is the creme de la creme the, the best of the best the five star ratings uh the films that um are talked about for a reason all timers mm-hmm. so with that little refresher matt how would you rate grade double indemnity it'd be really easy to say that this is top shelf but i'm going to give it a rating of single barrel and i'm going to say that that this is one of my five favorite films ever we i feel like i say that every week but we yeah. just so happen to bring it up every week yeah this is one of my five I'm going to say single barrel and not top shelf because I don't know if we can do single barrel top shelf. Mm -hmm. This movie is the quintessential genre defining film noir and the story behind how it almost didn't get made several times and all of the pieces that had to come together and take a chance, whether it was choosing McMurray, who was kind of doofy next door, romantic comedy, kind of not even lead, but guy. And royalty Stanwick being pitched three or four times, then dolling her up in this garish attire to Edward G. Robinson admitting that his better days were behind him and coming along to Wilder just not killing Chandler mm-hmm. in the process. Mm-hmm. All of those things have to come together in a way to make what is truly a masterful piece of cinema. Mm-hmm. Double indemnity, it's single barrel. Yeah. The best of the single barrel. Yeah. It's only ever been brewed in one cask ever. It will only be served yeah. in one bottle. Yeah. Uh, it is It is as close to perfection as I can think of. There is not a scene in that movie that I'm like wanting to get out of. Get it next. I love it. It's infinitely rewatchable. Um, so there's my vote. Like I can't sing its praises high enough. Yeah. Go ahead, Jesse. Excellent. I'm probably also going to have to go with the rating of single barrel, but like, yeah, single barrel plus. Uh, this is truly a, 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 a great film. And, you know, if I have a bit of a precursor, this is probably actually, this maybe speaks to the man himself. This is probably my fourth favorite Billy Wilder film. Holy smokes. Yeah, followed by, you know, Some Like It Hot. Sure. Sunset Boulevard. Of course. And Ace in the Hole, Kirk Douglas. Yeah. Um, but those are all great. This is a great film too. Not even including the apartment or lost weekend. Those movies are phenomenal as well. Um, but this is truly great. And I think, you know, highlighted, but by some pretty amazing sequences, you know, like this Dietrichson hiding behind the door, the actual murder of her husband and this, uh, uh, this whole, um, sequence on, on the train. And, you know, the, the, the way Wilder, you know, kind of toys with story by cutting back and forth with, with Neff in in the this in the office recording to kind of catch us up. In a smart way to catch the audience up, that's really a cool thing to do for yeah. him. Like this is, mm-hmm. let me let the audience get their feet underneath him. I love mm-hmm. it. Yeah, keep going. Yeah, Sorry. Exactly, and brilliant performances. You know, the tone is just there. I, I think his voiceover and both of the films that we've discussed the last two weeks in this cask haven't really had like that voiceover that detective or the insurance adjuster or whatever so this film has it and you see like you know when a film noir has the voiceover you know how you can steer the audience in any number of directions so i think that's a very powerful 
uh, mechanism that's clearly at play here. Well, and to that, mm-hmm. you brought it up, but the voiceover from the beginning of Sunset Boulevard, yep. here I am face down in this pool, let me tell you how I got here. Oh, that's the couple, br- come on. Yeah, brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah. And I think I mentioned in the first, um, when we talked about Serenity, that you know when film noir works really well that I think it has to be black and white yeah just because of what you can do with the cinematography and the the set design and 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 the and the, and the shadows and yeah. it, it almost kind of alludes that you kind of don't know what color their their clothing is unless they tell you mm-hmm. but I think that just alludes more to the mystery like is she wearing that pink shirt or you know the blonde in her hair it makes you try and see more than what's really there well said so you know i I think i gotta go single barrel but i think i'm with you this is this is a really a really a really great film i wouldn't put it on my top shelf and like i said i wouldn't put it on my top billy wilder shelf but it's up there it's 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 a really really phenomenal movie as you rattled off those three other films then added added uh um, the apartment and lost weekend that's seven films, Jesse, mm-hmm. that are just absolutely brilliant. Yep. And again, I, I think it's just more evidence of what we talked about earlier. We talk about greats. And I don't think anybody's going to say he wasn't a great. But I don't think he's ever on the tip of anybody's tongue. No. And I just got to, you know, and you both have a love for Hitchcock. Yeah. Wilder's better, man. Mm-hmm. Like, I love Hitchcock, but Wilder's better. Yeah. You know, we talk about our tears with Hitchcock, like... His truly great, his second tier. And everything after the birds. Everything after that, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, no, yeah, I think more people should talk about him more and seek out his films as well. Indeed. Mm -hmm. Well, excellent. So, that kind of... By the way, this movie right now you can get, if you have Xfinity, you can get it for free on demand right now. Mm -hmm. I would recommend carving out two hours on Sunday or on Monday because you all are going to be off. Right, everybody's Excellent. off on Monday. Excellent, beautiful, and taking a couple hours and just enjoying this film, and pour yourself a little glass of bourbon with it. I promise it'll go down great. There you go. All right. Um, so that's kind of the final nail in the cask for this one. We put this one back on the shelf, and um, we'll kind of end 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 the episode here with with the nightcap. So, kind of staying in the film noir genre for just once more uh the new batman film that's supposed to be coming out in 2021 uh directed by matt reeves he did dawn of the planet of the apes and war of the planet of the apes oh my god you lost me at planet of the apes (laughs) yeah um has gone on record saying he wants us to be a more noir driven batman in the vein of his detective roots but with a definite more film noir style. So at this point, Ben Affleck, he's he he's out. So there's actually no actor attached to Batman currently. So my question to you is, from all of Batman's rogues gallery, and we could argue he has maybe one of the better villain rogues galleries in comic lore, what villain would best fit that noir sensibility that they're aiming for? I'm actually going to rehash a couple of characters that have already been used, but if it's done with a new director and a new Batman, then I guess that gives the directorial license to use them again. The sword sharpener for me in the Batman universe 
has always been the Riddler. He's the one who keeps him sharp. He's the one that forces his detective powers to work in overdrive to figure out whatever is and he's never doing it to find the lost cat it always revolves around crime so i think that's a natural beginning for me is the riddler with the crime element and then i know that a lot of people are going to roll their eyes but a Catwoman done well which would be the third time we've seen her now mm-hmm. from pfeiffer to hathaway to whoever this might be as the role of femme fatale who's either coaxed or forced into that role by the riddler I think could be masterfully done. Now that's not anything new that we haven't seen, but if we stick to DC detective comics, Mm -hmm. that early version of what Bob Kane's Batman was, then I think we have the potential for something that could really be spectacular. It's street level. It's gritty. And we've talked about this before. One more thing that kind of has me very intrigued about this. If the villain gets too strong for Batman, and basically he's reduced to nothing. It's why Gotham has a world unto itself in the DC universe. Yeah. Because if the villain's too big, he's just a guy on the ledge shooting batarangs and it's not going to do anything. Yeah. So you have to keep it at a very level, a, a street level that he can handle. So I would give you the Riddler as the cr- introducing the crime element mm-hmm. and the Catwoman to do his bidding to either pin it on Batman or something along those lines. But okay. it's a natural fit with the femme fatale and clearly the tension between the two of them. Yeah, you're right. It's it's hard not to pick Catwoman because she's like plucked right out of noir. Yeah, literally. Like like right a, out of noir. Everything about her character just just screams that genre. So you know, I always thought they could kind of do the Riddler too as almost kind of like a serial killer too. Like yeah, why not? Leaving riddles to his victims, kind of very seven like in a way. That sounds like seven. Um. So yeah, that, that 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 could be pretty good. So my my pick for this is I'm going a little outside of the boundaries. I'm actually going to pick a villain that they haven't done before on film, and that's Clayface. Now, not Clayface like giant behemoth, Mister Clay Monster. Like that's pretty ridiculous, and I don't know how that would look on on film. But the original version of Clayface is uh, Basil Carlo. Um, he's a B-list actor who is um, driven insane when he hears that they're going to remake one of his uh, classic horror films that he was in. So um, he dons this costume of this clay-faced kind of killer and um, hmm. starts hunting down the people that are going to be in that movie. Oh, kinda, yeah. Kind of killing them off. So, uh, you know, eventually Batman kind of hones in on him. So it's um, kind of along that almost bordering on slasher but a way to do a villain that hasn't been done before but you know if you are going noir with detective skills and kind of that seedy underbelly of gotham you could have you know this investigatory element of stop someone like that and you know you get you know someone like michael fassbender to play play that character like you know that could be that could be pretty good so Mm -hmm. i essentially i want to see villains that haven't been used yet as is the thing you know there's so many you know there's some great potential out there with with the villains well the good news is with fassbender Mm -hmm. is if everything that i've read about dark phoenix is actually true there won't be much more x-men going forward because supposedly that movie's atrocious so the magneto the magneto gig may be about done going the way the dinosaurs here so he may have some time on his hands okay (laughs) excellent excellent (laughs) Well, those are those are some pretty good choices. We'll have to kind of 
kind of see what direction they take that in when when the movie eventually comes out but we'll um kind of wrap it up um we'll be unveiling the next cask next week and this one we're going to be diving into uh the cask titled the corporation from hell now this is you know something you've seen in in many movies before you know you know the devil wears prado with this horrific ceo and you know these companies that are up to no good but if there's one genre that this is at play more so for financial gain for potential ruin for the end of the world it's in science fiction and we're going to be diving right into that with uh the 1979 film alien and uh please please see that if you have not already um i'll just say right right from the get-go i'm i'm a, I'm a huge huge fan of alien so it's kind of why i picked that one to, to start with but the corporation behind it uh Wayland yutani corporation is you know a pretty good one to start with so Agreed. that's what we'll be diving into so like to raise it up like to like to toast billy wilder me too paul verhoven and i'm gonna even toast stephen knight as well you know hopefully this was a wake-up call for him and he decides to you know rectify this with his ongoing endeavors but well cheers to them and cheers to you, Matt. Same to you, Jesse. And we'll see you all next week with our review of Alien. Have a good week, everybody. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rise Smile Films. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay in the know for future episodes. And be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and Google Play Music. Double Indemnity is property of Paramount Pictures and MCA Universal, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. Dear Keys, suppose you'll call this a confession when you hear it. Well, I don't like the word confession. I just want to set you right about something you couldn't see because it was smack up against your nose. You think you're such a hot potato as a claims manager, such a wolf on a phony claim. Maybe you are. But let's take a look at that Dietrichsen claim. Accident in double indemnity.